Well, great job to the children for their excellent ministry to us, and doubly so for all our servants and our children's ministry, um, their tireless efforts in teaching and shepherding our precious children. We truly thank God for you guys. Uh, the leaders are Daniel Lee and Gary Kim, and the teachers are Kathy Lee, Joan Hong, Shane Lee was the guy here doing the hand motions, um, Henny Lim, and I guess Karen So is part of the team. She was there this morning. Well, our, our gratitude to you guys, your faithfulness to teach, pray, and care for the little ones of our body is a stirring example to all of us. Um, it is our prayer that the Lord will, will bless, abundantly bless you uh, in the Lord and in the ministry. Uh, maybe you've noticed uh, uh, one of the teachers, uh, Cindy, a special prayer request. She's in our ninth month of pregnancy. I think our due date is about three, three and a half weeks away ask all of you to pray for her uh, this week for a safe labor and delivery. Pray also for our, our teacher and leader, Gary Kim, and his household, that God will protect them, grant them peace as they welcome their new baby daughter to the family. Well, on this special Christmas Lord's Day, I want to invite all of you to take your Bibles. And if you'll turn with me to the 26th chapter of Matthew's, Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 26. You might be surprised to note that in the history of our church, a great majority of our time on Sunday mornings have been spent in the Gospels. We spent four and a half years before, in fact, going back before our church plant, spent four and a half years in the Gospel of Matthew, a year and a half in First Timothy, and then now we've spent over a year in the Gospel of John. So needless to say, the Gospels have a very special place in my heart, in the heart of our church. And I'm sure you'd agree what a joy it has been to study the Gospels together as a church family. And I consider it one of the supreme privileges of my life to study with you week after week the life of our Lord Jesus Christ, to, to discover together the majesty, the beauty of our King. I mean, has it not been a thrilling experience to learn and grow in the knowledge of our Lord? Has it not? This is why we were created. We were created for this purpose, to learn and to know Christ. It is the ultimate aim of our life, as Paul said, that he, he presses on to know Christ, the fellowship of His sufferings, Becoming like Him unto His death. And it is our final destiny to see Christ as He is. This is uh, the purpose of our existence to know Christ, is it not? But in light of that, it is a sad but true fact that a great majority of believers today know so very little about Christ the marvelous and soul-enriching truths about Him, the powerful and rewarding truths about Christ, the profoundly blessing truths about our Lord remain unknown to a great majority of believers today. I mean, it is a sign of our times that so many Christians have greater knowledge about a movie star than about Christ. There are many who can rattle off sports statistics Facts about TV shows, details about entertainers, know every song on the radio, and yet so, know so little 
about our Lord and Savior. And brothers and sisters, I sense that in my own heart this morning, that my own heart is dulled by this world and the distractions that come with it. You know, my wife tells me at times that I remind her of um, Cliff Clavin of Cheers. You guys remember that old show? That's post, you know, postman who knew all these trivial facts. Because she says, I know all these facts and details that are really useless and pointless. Except when you're playing Trivial Pursuit. Other than that, they serve no purpose. Well, because of the clutter of this world, I sense my own heart lacks the yearning and longing for Christ as it should. My soul, even during the season of shopping, and Christmas cards, and decorating, my heart is shallow, lacking the capacity to rein in the many rich and profound mysteries of Christ. Therefore, this morning, as we approach Matthew 26, in all honesty, I don't know if I am prepared to preach this text. You know what? I know I am not the man that I am not qualified, I am not able to preach this text, because in approaching this profound passage, I find myself too small of a man to dare tackle such a great passage about our Lord. I mean, you consider Matthew 26, what's going on here in Gethsemane, the mystery, the paradox of this text is too deep. Here is the God-man crying out to God for deliverance. His sorrow, His anguish, his love for God, I can't even begin to understand. So as we start our study, I begin with a qualifier that I am not doing this text justice. And my only comfort, my only comfort is that I am not alone in feeling this way. On April 12, 1885, Charles Haddon Spurgeon called the Prince of Preachers, and no doubt one of the greatest preachers in church church history, he preached a sermon titled, The Man Christ Jesus. In the sermon he said this, I am never more vexed with myself than when I have done my very best to extol His dear name. What is it but holding a candle to the sun? I cannot speak as I would of Him. The blaze of this sun blinds me, end quote. So Spurgeon was caught in a tension that I am well familiar with, where you long to know everything about Christ. You attempt to explain and present Him in His fullness. You do your best you can. And yet, you're aware that you come woefully short of the reality of Christ. So I am vexed myself, for I can only scratch the surface of the profound truths of this message. A very important passage recording for us the crisis event of Christ's life. That this valley in between two mountains, His birth and His death resurrection, that if we were to understand this passage, we would have gained a great insight to Christ. Now, let me just say one thing. You, know, you guys might be saying, well, James, is it kind of inappropriate to be preaching about Gethsemane, the passion of Christ, the sorrow of Christ, on Christmas? Shouldn't you be preaching this on Easter? Is it appropriate for us to go into the valley 
of Christ's life on a day like this, you know, I believe it is completely appropriate for us to celebrate, for us to celebrate Christ in this manner. We read this morning this passage, and one of the children, I think it was either Tim or Derek, Lindsay or Carol, or Eugene or Nathan, I don't know which one, but one of them was saying how the Magi brought gifts. They brought gold, pointing to his royalty. They brought incense, pointing to his role as a priest. And surprisingly, they brought a gift that was, at the time, seemingly so inappropriate. They brought myrrh, a substance used in burial. I mean, if somebody brought a gift like that to Elizabeth's baby shower, I think I'd be very offended. But not so with Christ. It was perfectly appropriate that they would bring myrrh. Because he was born to die. He was born to give his life. He was born to redeem. And the Magi giving that gift was pointing to the cross. Even at his birth, the gifts were pointing to how he would die. He would die in agony. He would die on the cross. He would die alone as a man of sorrows. Now consider this with me. Think about this. That the agony of the Lord that we see in Gethsemane characterized His life. Our Lord's life wasn't a life of charm and comfort and luxuries. And one crisis, one sad event of the cross, that, that doesn't characterize Christ's life. In fact, Christ is characterized by sorrow. That's one of his names. That's one of his titles. He's called the man of sorrows. There's a song that I love to sing. A song, Jesus, you're the sweetest name of all. You guys know the song? Jesus, you always hear me when I call. Jesus, you lift me up each time I call. Jesus, you're the sweetest name of all. I love that song because it is so true. That name Jesus is so sweet, is it not? Jesus, in the Greek, is a transliteration of the Hebrew name Joshua. It means Jehovah is salvation. Jesus is the Savior. That's the meaning of the name. The both Testaments have given numerous names, titles to Christ. He is called the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, Revelation 1.8. Hebrews 12.2 calls Him the author and perfecter of our faith. Isaiah calls him in chapter 9, these wonderful titles. He is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, everlasting Father. He is the Prince of Peace. Isaiah 7.14 calls him Emmanuel. We read that passage this morning. He is God with us. Matthew 11.19, one of my favorites. And it was given to him by an enemy of Christ, the Pharisees. They called him a friend of sinners. My favorite title for Christ. You're a sinner. He's your friend. He came for you. He's called the head of the church. Ephesians 5.23 The Baptist called him the Lamb of God. John 1.29 Our Lord called himself the light of the world. John 8.12 Revelation 5.5 He is called the Lion from the tribe of Judah. And the name that I want to highlight to you this morning is the one given by Isaiah in chapter 53. It says in verse 3 of that chapter, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, He was despised and we esteemed Him not. That phrase, man of sorrows, is a characterization. 
In other words, he is a man who is marked by sorrow. If one word could summarize, characterize his existence, that he was a man of sorrows. It is not just an element of his life. It was a running theme, the running thread of his whole existence. It is noteworthy to point out that in the Gospels, there is no record of Jesus ever laughing in the Bible. Never. But often the Gospels record the many tears and the deep sadness of Jesus. Jesus, the thrice holy God, pure and perfect, incarnate as a man, He was thrust into a world of sin. A world of disgusting depravity, wickedness, hypocrisy, and vanity. He encountered firsthand the stench of man's sinfulness. And that caused him great and unceasing pain and sorrow. He was saddened, overwhelmed by the corrupt power of sin in people's lives. He saw the consequences of Adam's sin daily in his life. We studied a few weeks ago how in Mark chapter 3 there was a man with a shriveled hand. And our Lord said, Is it right for me to heal this man on the Sabbath? Look at this man in pain. The Pharisees would not say anything. He looked around, verse 5, in anger and in deep distress, deep sorrow at the stubbornness of their hearts. When our Lord's friend Lazarus died and he saw the pain it caused in Mary and Martha, it says in John 11.35, Jesus wept. He didn't say, Mary and Martha, it's alright. Why are you guys mourning? I'm the Lord. I am sovereign. I am the resurrection. You need not fret or be sorrowful. He didn't do that. He saw the, the pain of loss of a brother. And he himself was sorrowful. He himself wept. When he approached Jerusalem for his last Passover, and the knowledge of its impending destruction caused him to openly weep over Jerusalem in Luke 19. Our Lord was a man of sorrows throughout his life, not just in the garden, but throughout his life. Isaiah 53 says he was so disfigured that he wasn't even regarded as a human. He was not worthy to be given attention as a man. He says in verse 3, he was despised and rejected by all men. He was familiar with suffering. He was stricken. He was diseased. He was leprous. Verse 5 says he was pierced, crushed, and punished. Verse 7, he was oppressed and afflicted, meaning he was beaten up. He was unjustly led like a lamb to the slaughter. And that it was the Lord's will, verse 10, to crush him and cause him to suffer. Throughout his life he suffered. Throughout his life, emotionally, spiritually, experientially, he suffered. And that suffering, I believe, climaxed here in Gethsemane. Climaxed here his sorrow. Here alone with God, our Lord wrestles with the deepest sorrow experienced by any man in the history of mankind. I believe the greatest suffering was on the cross. But his greatest sorrow was on Gethsemane. Why? Because the decision for the cross was made here, in the garden. Right? You guys ever wrestle with a decision? Wrestle with something difficult that would have difficult consequences towards you or a loved one? The agony, the sorrow, the pain occurs in the making of the decision. 
once the decision is made, hey, you crossed over the line, a die has been cast, decision is set, you're somewhat at peace. But the agony is in making the decision. That's why I believe he suffered on the cross, but he was most sorrowful here at Gethsemane. Well, go with me to verse 36. Let me attempt to merely scratch the surface and do my best to to dig out truths from this profound text. Verse 36, And Jesus went with His disciples to a place called Gethsemane, Olive Press. And He said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. It's late Thursday night. Our Lord took them, the disciples, to the Mount of Olives, a mountainside right next to Jerusalem. We actually walked down that mountain, looking at Jerusalem all the way down. In that mountainside, it's a Mount of Olives. So they have a, a, a Mount uh, Olive Press, a cave that is hewn into the rock, where they would go and press these olives and make olive oil. It is still they, still there to this day. Our Lord, it was a place where the Christ's disciples would go to rest and pray. Our Lord took his disciples there, and he took James, John, and Peter, and he went to a garden near Gethsemane to pray. We'll consider the progression of the passage in four parts. The passion, the prayer, perplexity, and the persistence of Christ. Four stages, four parts of this passage. Passion, prayer, perplexity, and persistence. First, let's look at the passion of Christ. You know, if you go to Webster's Dictionary and look up the word passion, you'll actually see this as one of the definitions. Quote, the sufferings of Christ, especially in the agony of the garden and on the cross. Another definition, intense or overpowering emotion. The endurance of some painful infliction and suffering. Verse 37 says, He took Peter and two sons of Zebedee along with him. And he began. So here is where it starts. Verse 37. Here is the beginnings of of his sorrow. He began to be sorrowful and troubled. A dreadful and yet sacred time. The word sorrowful, lupistai, it denotes great grief and sorrow. It, it, it points to an idea, the sense of being surrounded by anguish, full of heartache, full of heaviness. We find our Lord prostrate, sweating, overwhelmed with grief and dread. Suffice to say that his emotional sorrow and pain was intense beyond what his body could, could take. I mean, if anyone articulates this in the Scriptures, it is Job. As he says in Job 6, 2 and 3, if only my anguish could be weighed and all my misery be placed on the scales, it would surely outweigh the sands of the seas. No wonder my words have been impetuous. Job said that, but our Lord's sorrow was infinitely greater his pain was so great that he says in verse 38, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He is so sad. He is so distraught. None of us here have come even close to what our Lord is experiencing here. That he, his body couldn't handle it. Luke 22:44, the doctor Luke, in his parallel passage, writes, being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. 
and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. The magnitude of his grief caused our Lord's capillaries to dilate and burst. As the capillaries burst under the pressure of deep distress and blood escaped through the pores of his skin, it mingled with his sweat. He literally sweated out his blood. And our Lord says, He's so sorrowful, He's at the point of death. His body couldn't take it. Right there in the garden, He says, He could have died. His human body was unable to take the strain of His soul. You know, I believe that the only reason He didn't die is because God sent an angel to minister to Him. Luke twenty-two forty-four. An angel of God was sent to strengthen Him. Other than that, His body was so weak could have died. Now, we need to ask ourselves, what is the reason for our Lord's sorrow? You know guys, as we study the life of Christ, we need to have a dual perspective. We need to accept and understand that He is God. He is the Sovereign. He is the Creator. At the same time, we also need to be mindful of His humanity. That He is incarnate in flesh, just like you and I. So for us to read this text and say, Hey, James, he's God. It's alright. Jesus, why are you sad? You're God. Everything will be okay. You're ignoring the fact that he's fully human. He's clothed in flesh. That he's filled with sorrow. And that's legitimate sorrow. Now we need to ask ourselves, and ask ourselves, what is the reason for his sorrow? What is the reason for his sadness and grief? Was it perhaps the prospect of being betrayed by a friend? Psalm 41.9 Even my close friend whom I trusted, he who shared my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Psalm 55.12-14 If an enemy were insulting me, I could endure it. If a fool were raising himself against me, I could find... Hide it from Him. But it is you, my companion, my close friend, with whom I once enjoyed sweet, sweet fellowship as we walked with a throng at the house of God. Because of the betrayal of this close friend, is that the reason for his sorrow? Perhaps. Maybe many of us have, have experienced that to different degrees and we can testify, yes, that hurts. When someone close turns against us, is it maybe the denial by Peter and all his disciples? The prospect of all his disciples deserting him might have caused him such sorrow knowing that he devoted three and a half years of his life to discipling these men and at the hour of his greatest need they will all be gone caring for themselves, perhaps. Maybe the, maybe the cruelty and the injustice of sinful men, the physical sufferings that he will endure on the cross. Maybe that caused him sorrow. Matthew twenty six sixty seven. it says, They spit on his face. They struck him with their fists. Others slapped him. They flogged him with a whip. They thrust a crown of thorns on his head and nailed him to the cross. And our Lord, knowing that, maybe that caused him the sorrow to the point of death. Yes, church, Undoubtedly, all these reasons caused Jesus some amount of sadness, but to the point where He is sorrowful, to the point where He is despairing, to the point of death, 
I am not convinced. May I use some strong words here? I believe. Humbly, I believe it is ludicrous to think that he was so saddened at this sacred hour because of Judas' betrayal. I mean, I think it's sad in Christ, but I mean, our Lord was a man. He was courageous. He had a heart for God. He was born for this. He understood that the cross was his destiny. That was the hour for which he came. Was he saddened by the denials of his disciples? Even maybe the physical sufferings of the cross? I believe it is ludicrous. Mortal men have endured similar pains. Remember Socrates? Not even a Christian. In the prison cell in Athens, according to Plato's account, he took his cup, took the cup of poison to his lips, very cheerfully and quietly, and he drank it. He died without fear, sorrow, or protest. Was Socrates braver than Jesus? There have been Christian martyrs. Who were, who were persecuted for Christ and died for the faith, were they more brave than Christ? Like the apostles in the book of Acts when they were leaving the Sanhedrin with their backs bloody from the 39 lashes and they were rejoicing considering themselves worthy to suffer for God's kingdom, were they more brave than Christ? What about the post-apostolic period? Men like Ignatius, Polycarp, the martyrs throughout the church, throughout church history. Were they all braver than our Lord Jesus Christ? Was Gethsemane a moment of weakness for our Lord? No. A thousand times no. What caused Jesus such sorrow? Caused Him to go to God in this prayer? The answer is found in the prayer of Christ. The passion of Christ, now the prayer of Christ. In verse 39... Matthew records for us in that sacred and, and intimate moment he overhears the prayer of Christ and he writes down the content, writes for us the content. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. This prayer reveals what caused such agony in our Lord's soul. Our Lord prays that this cup be taken from Him. This symbolized neither the physical pain of being flogged and crucified, nor the mental distress of being despised and rejected by men. The cup symbolized rather the spiritual agony of bearing the sins of the world. The agony of bearing the sins of the world. In other words, the pain of enduring the divine judgment of all the sins of the world. The cup represented the wrath of God, the anger of God. The Lord's cup was a common symbol of God's holy wrath in the Old Testament. Prophets Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel all describe this cup of God's wrath. Jeremiah 25, 15 and 16. The Lord says, Take from me this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. Jeremiah 25, 27, Drink, get drunk and vomit because of the sword I will send to you. That's what this cup represented, the wrath of God. And for our Lord, the prospect of drinking this cup, meaning taking on God's anger upon His own flesh, Cause the Lord his sorrow. 
where on the cross, all the sins of the world were laid upon Him. And God treated His own Son as sin. He became sin for us. That's what happened on the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. God made Jesus who had never sinned. He made Him sin on our behalf so that by our faith in Him He might impute to us, give to us, grant to us, credit to us the righteousness of His Son Jesus Christ. That was the agony that Christ struggled over, becoming a curse on our behalf. That truth filled the Lord with grief and overwhelming sorrow. The thought of being separated from God on the cross caused Him inexpressible torment. That is why, and this is one of my favorite truths of the Gospels, that every time our Lord addresses God as Father, except once, only once, on the cross, He does not say, My Father, My Father. He says, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? Because God, seeing sin in Christ's flesh, forsook Him on the cross, turned away. And at that moment, He was separated from God the Father. Could not call Him my Father. Could only address Him as God. He was alone on the cross. This is what He dreaded. Separation from His beloved Father. You know, this past week, I was talking to a father at the church, and he gave me insight into this passage that I'm just beginning to learn. I'm just beginning to learn as a new father. He was telling me how his son is kind of oblivious to pain. It's a hard time disciplining him, right? You know, using a rod, using a hand, you know, people's elbow, whatever. I mean, he, he, he's so like above pain that it's just difficult to discipline his own son. He was telling me how only thing that he feared was a separation, the relationship that was the result of the discipline. He didn't fear the, rela- the pain, but the separation, the relationship. That his son, every time he disciplined him, immediately after, wanted a hug. He wants to be reconciled. He asked, Daddy, are you okay? Are you happy now? Because he fears losing the love of his father. doesn't care about the pain. All he cares about is the relationship. And he was telling me how, yes, Daddy's okay. And once they pray together and reconcile, he goes and plays. Right? Everything's okay with this world because his relationship with his dad is reconciled. Well that, well, that is a glimpse of Christ's agony. That is the reason for our Lord's sorrow. The separation from His beloved Father. Now, consider this. If the agony in the garden, the agony in the garden opens a window to the greater agony of the cross. If just the prospect of that considered Him to sweat blood and die in Gethsemane. What was it like in reality? If just thinking about it caused Him to weep. I mean, what was it like on the cross when it actually happened? How great was that torment, that agony, that grief, the sorrow when it actually happened? We can't know. We can't even comprehend the depths of our Lord's agony. Because as 
sinless and holy God incarnate as He was, He, we are unable to perceive the, ho- the, the horror of that event. We can't even attempt to understand the sufferings of Christ in Gethsemane, let alone on Calvary. Well, in Gethsemane, the pain was so great that he prayed, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Now, look at that prayer. It says, If it is possible. Is our Lord calling on, questioning the ability of God? Do you have the authority, God, to do this? Do you have the right? Do you have the power to remove this cup from me? No, he's not questioning God. Nothing is impossible with God. What he's asking was, is there another way? In your redemptive plan to save the elect. In your redemptive plan to save sinners and forgive sin. Is there any other way that man can be saved apart from his death on the cross? And the answer is obvious, no. There is no other way. We cannot save ourselves. The answer doesn't lie outside of the cross. We do not cooperate with God to achieve nor gain our salvation. Our Lord must die. He must ransom. He must purchase us and thereby secure our salvation. His, our Lord's prayer was not an attempt to resist God's, God's will or even to change God's plan. He ended both prayers with die will be done. Well, let's go to the perplexity of Christ. The perplexity of Christ. The next few verses show the greatness of Christ and at the same time, the faithlessness of the disciples. We see Christ at His, at his height and we see the disciples. We see man at their death. When our Lord needed them the most, they were asleep. He asked Peter, Peter, you're willing to die for me and you cannot stay up for one hour? Verse 42, he went away a second time. When he came back, they were sleeping again. After the third time, he he says the same thing, returns with strength and resolve. We see the perplexity of Christ, the weakness of man, not able to be spiritually alert and agonize with Christ and pray for him. Well, after the passion, after the prayer, after the perplexity, we see at the close the persistence of Christ. The persistence of Christ. Verse 45. Are you still sleeping after He returns? Look, the hour is near, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Rather than being weakened and deterred by the temptations, our Lord becomes stronger. His resolution is clear. Instead of waiting for His enemies to come to Him, He rises up with honor and dignity and He goes out the line to meet His enemies. He went out to meet them. In John twelve twenty seven, our Lord says, Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No! It was for this reason I came. I came for this hour with the courage of a lion. He made the ultimate and final act of commitment 
to his heavenly Father. He met his betrayer, met his enemies, and he finished what God had called him to do. He died on the cross. He died on the cross for our sins. Well, there's just so much truth here. So many principles that we can apply as believers. Let me just close our time by sharing with you my, my personal you know, my personal applications from this passage. You know, three personal practical applications and three theological applications. Three personal, three theological. First of all, in my heart, when I see a when I see when I look at the model of submission, when I struggle with obedience, when I struggle with self centeredness, I look to Gethsemane. I look at Christ and his passion. Because here he is the model of submission. He is our example. He teaches us, not by prescription, but by modeling truth. He lives out what it means to obey God's will. He teaches us the heart of submission. That submission is the laying aside of our hopes, our dreams, our desires, our wishes. Laying that aside no matter what the consequences, putting first and foremost the will of God, that is the essence of submission. That is the essence of obedience. That true obedience is obeying God when we don't want to obey. That our emotions have nothing to do with obedience. That obedience by essence is obeying when we don't want to. There are too many of us too often in my heart, I'm a situational Christian. Or I'm an emotional Christian, meaning I obey when my emotion, when I feel like it. When it's comfortable. When it's advantageous. When my will is aligned to the will of God. No, obedience means obeying against your own will when you don't want to obey, when it's not pleasant, when it's not advantageous, saying, not my will, but God, thy will be done. Secondly, I see the devastating consequences of spiritual dullness. The devastating consequences of spiritual dullness. How the mundane things will keep us from obeying Christ. I mean, here was Peter's Kairos opportunity. Here was Christ in his most desperate hour. And Peter could, could have risen above the situation. He could have went to the line and, and been there for Christ. It was his time to shine. All the training of three and a half years was for this moment. was for this opportunity for Peter to pray with Christ, agonize and weep with Christ. But what kept him? What, what caused him to miss out on this opportunity to glorify God? It wasn't some great sin. It wasn't some tragic decision. It was a mundane thing like sleep. A normal thing like sleep. It reminds me that opportunities will come in life to obey and glorify God. And I must not let the mundane things like sleep like time, 
Well, I'm too busy. Or friendships. Or civilian affairs. Keep me from obeying God. Keep me from glorifying Christ. You know, this opportunity never came back for Peter, James, and John. Reminder to us, we don't get these years back. And when you're young, you think you have like all this time to glorify Christ. It is not true. You have one life. You'll only be your age once in your life and that's it. And time will pass you by. You will never get those years back. At the end of your life, you'll say, where has my life gone? It was spent doing mundane things. And your opportunity to glorify Christ will be gone and will be given over to the next generation of believers. I see the devastating consequences of spiritual dullness here. And then finally, I see the arena of spiritual warfare. I see the arena, the, 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 the focal point of spiritual warfare, where Christ's wrestling was not at Calvary. It was not with the Pharisees. It was not with the religious system. It was not Judas. His war was with himself. It was his war was his desire because of his love for God, not to be separate from Him, but his greater desire to do God's will. His spiritual war was right here. He understood that obedience starts in the heart, that it is waged alone, that it is a battle between what self wants and what God wants. It's a great application for me and perhaps for you, that whatever you're struggling with, it's not out there. It's not with the world. It's not with your friends or relatives or it's not with some sin out there. It is within you. It is, it is right here. Are you going to obey God? Are you going to follow Christ? Or are you going to live for yourself? You know, these uh, applications are considerable and they're noteworthy. But I want to close our time with on a grander scale because... Just the absolute profundity of this passage necessitate that the applications we draw have a broader depth and significance. That, they, that the applications are even higher than just our own Christian lives. Let me, just, let me conclude with three theological conclusions. Take a step back and see the Lord's struggle in Gethsemane, sorrow in Gethsemane from a broader theological perspective. First of all, his struggle tells us, his sorrows tell us that our sins must be extremely horrible. Our sins must be extremely horrible. Our Lord's agony reveal, reveals the gravity of our sins. For what ultimately sent Christ to the cross was not the greed of Judas, not the envy of the Pharisees, not the cowardice of Pilate. What nailed Christ in the cross was our greed. Our envy, our cowardice, and every unmentionable sin that we, you and I commit, that is what brought God's judgment upon Christ on the cross. Can you today face the God-man crying alone in the Garden of Gethsemane? Can you face Him and not feel ashamed of your sins? In light of such a sacred sacrifice... Do you see just a, how extremely horrible your own sins are? Will you say with the Apostle Paul, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? 
Who, who is my hope? Who is my salvation? Jesus Christ alone. Will you say that with Paul today? Secondly, our Lord's agony tells us that God's love must be more wonderful beyond comprehension. That God's love is more wonderful beyond comprehension. And why would the Lord agonize for you and I in such a way? He could have justly abandoned us to our fate. He could have left us to reap the fruit of our own lifetime full of sins. It is what you and I deserve. That's justice. We sinned. We paid a penalty. We are separated from God. But Him, in His persistence, in His agony, in His sorrow, revealed the heart of God. And He suffered and He died unto God for undeserving sinners because of His unending love for us. If, if your heart this morning is not moved by such love, you have no heart. You have no soul. You have no conscience. What passes for your heart is a hard and callous machine. If you are not moved by the love of Christ revealed in, the, revealed in Gethsemane, if you have such a heart, cry out to God this day that He'll give you a new heart, a heart that we moved by this example of Christ. And then finally, final theological application is that we can come to Christ with boldness and ask Him to save us. We can come to Christ boldly and confess our sins with all our sins, with all our weaknesses and corruptions. We can go to Him because He's been there. Not only does He understand he empathizes we with our weaknesses. Hebrews 2.18 Because He Himself suffered when He was tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted. Hebrews 4.15-16 We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. You know, most high, all high priests were unapproachable. They're untouchable. A lay person dare not approach the high priest, let alone touch him. But not Christ. He is the great high priest. He says to all, come to me. Tempted in every way. Experience the great of sorrows. And therefore, He understands and sympathizes with our sins and our sorrows. And therefore, we can go to God in prayer for salvation and for confession. Let's pray. Lord, on this special Christmas, Lord's Day, we remember the birth of your Son, Jesus Christ. It is second only to the day of His death in terms of greatness, in terms of significance. But on that day, Lord, you gave us the greatest gift 
you gave us your own son. And by his death, reveals the wickedness of our sins, but at the same time, the graciousness and the abundance of your love. Lord, as believers, as, as Christians, as we try to battle out and live our Christian lives here on this fallen world, hope that the highlight of this Christmas will be the Son, Jesus Christ. It will not be gifts and things and possessions and, and just family and food. Our highlight will be knowing you and that we are known by you. May that be our treasure. May that be what we cherish this season. The gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, Amen.